Now, let's turn to Matthew chapter 2. Uh, Ryan has introduced the idea of epiphany. Uh, revelation is the meaning of that word. Revelation to the Gentiles, specifically, as we see this in Matthew chapter 2. And if you want to use the Bible that's in the pew, uh, you turn to page 807. First book of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 2, we'll begin with verse 1 and read through verse 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Thus the reading of God's word. Let us pray. O Lord, we ask that in this new year you would bless us with much of Christ. O Lord, enlarge him to us, make him beautiful and glorious to us. Cause us, Lord, to give ourselves up to him as never before. In this new year, for your glory and honor, we pray. Amen. Now, the title of our message this morning is, What is your response to the king of the Jews? Does this king trouble you, or do you respond to him and basically shrug your shoulders and say, I don't care, it doesn't matter to me? Or are you overjoyed at him? Troubled, apathetic, or overjoyed? And really, this is, a little, this is simple. If, for instance, you're not a believer in Christ, you might say, mm, well, I'm interested, maybe intrigued. So you'd be somewhere between you know, apathetic and overjoyed. And sometimes, maybe he troubles you a bit. Uh, in one week, we all know that we can, us believers, that we can be troubled by our thoughts of God, another time indifferent to God, and other times overjoyed in the same week. So this 
is not simple. But here Matthew sets before us three sets of characters that really exhibit at least three pretty clear responses. And so as we explore these responses, I hope that we can get a better handle on our own response to Jesus Christ, this King of the Jews. So again, what is your response to the King of the Jews? Are you troubled by him? Take King Herod, for instance. He'd been king of Judea for 30 years. He was an incredible, incredibly gifted leader, many great accomplishments, but he was increasingly cruel and paranoid later in life, among other things, killing his own wife and, and, and sons, suspecting them of wanting to overthrow his throne. So when he heard this report, he took it as a threat. And apparently, all of the Jerusalem leadership did as well because they were just as troubled as Herod. A king of the Jews, this has the makings of an uprising. We could all be overthrown, uh, Herod and the leaders were thinking. They were troubled by him. Now, you're not Herod. You're not the political leaders of Jerusalem. But for different reasons, you could ask this question, does Christ trouble you? Herod thought he would lose his position, lose his honor. Do you think, for instance, if you gave your life up to this king, you would lose too much? He troubles you in that regard. I would would lose a lot if I became a Christian. There's a similarity between Herod and us because we want control. We want control of our lives. By nature... We want to pursue our own happiness without any interference from God. And it's hard to give it up. And we fight it. Reminds me of Bilbo Baggins at the beginning of Lord of the Rings. Uh, Bilbo had had the great ring all through uh, most of The Hobbit. And he's old now. He's leaving his home. It's time to give up the ring. So he had told Gandalf that he was going to give it to his nephew Frodo. And as he's walking out the door, Gandalf says, Bilbo, the ring is still in your pocket. And, oh, yes, yes, it is. And he fumbles around and talks and talks. And he starts out the door again. And Gandalf has to say again, Bilbo, the ring. And it ends finally by Bilbo throwing the ring down on the floor and just walking out. It was so hard for him to give up this ring that meant so much to him. And having control of your life, my having control of my life, it's like that ring to us. Troubled at the thought of putting it into God's hands. Troubled at the thought of what he might do to me. What might happen to me in the hands of this God. But you still may be troubled by uh, other things uh, in regard to him. You may be troubled by because you think there's no way that God would forgive you for all that you've done and said and everything you've thought in your life. Or you may be troubled because you think there's no way I could live in a way that pleases God. I know myself. There's just no way I could do it. I've heard that a lot from people. The good news is that this Jesus, this king of the Jews, 
showed his magnificent kingship in dying for his people on a Roman cross. And on the cross, he bore the punishment that we deserve for our sin. So when you put your trust in Jesus, when you put your life in his hands, all your sins are forgiven. All of them. And it's not like, okay, you're clean now, but don't mess up after this. Because if you do, you're out again. Which, again and again, we tend to think. He cleans me up in the past, but now I'm on my own and I've got to do it right. Oh, I No, actually, through Christ, you're brought into a permanent relationship of favor and love with God. God becomes your father. You become his child. And it's in the atmosphere of that favor that you begin to grow and change and fail in the atmosphere of that permanent favor of God. And yeah, there is no way for any of us to live a life pleasing to God. But Paul writes in, the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians that none other than God himself will be at work in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. That's encouraging. He understands how weak we are. He understands you can't do this. It's part of His being your king, part of his rescuing you. To become then God's handiwork, as Paul describes it in another place. His handiwork, a person who more and more is freed to love God and love others. So I'm saying, don't be troubled by this king. Wouldn't it be sad if the, in a cave, people are you're trapped in a cave-in and the rescuers break through to save them and they're troubled by the rescuers? Wouldn't that be strange? But that's what this is. It's a rescue. It's a rescue for you and for me. He was born a human being to save us. Don't be troubled by him. Trust him. So, are you troubled by him? Now we ask, are you apathetic toward him? Several scholars talk about the apathy of the scribes and the Pharisees here. Why don't they rejoice? The Messiah is born. Why aren't they even looking for it in that way, right? Why don't they join the wise men? Why don't they run to Bethlehem to worship or at least check it out? But they do nothing. Oh, they can quote scripture, but they don't care to go see this Messiah at all. Though about 30 years later, of course, they know more about him. They're going to rise up and try to kill him. But here they ignore him. So we ask this question. Are you apathetic toward Jesus? You know, the word apathetic, having little or no emotion or feeling. Toward Jesus. You know, this is a great problem with those either raised in the church or who've been in the church for a long time. See, these are the religious, the super religious people that are apathetic. They're the church people, the most church people, the leaders, in fact. Sometimes we see the excitement or joy of someone who's recently converted, and we can even think, what's she so worked up about? Eh, get a grip. You'll 
get used to it after a while. Like people used to say of Kay and me, little lovebirds in the first year, oh, you'll get used to it after a while. Thankfully, 41 years in, we're not used to it. Okay. <clears throat> when you've grown up in a church and heard the message of the Bible again and again, sometimes instead of being excited, you can be bored. Sometimes it can happen because at first, when you're so young, you can't really understand everything that's being said. So you, you actually learn sometimes to just check out and worship. And then you may find out, though, when you get older that you've never checked back in. <laughs> that's just your way to come to church. Just check out. There's nothing here for me. I've heard about Jesus before. Now, let's go back to our rescue illustration. If you're in a cave-in, you've been there for days, you're starving, you're dehydrated. Break, the rescuers break through. They break through the rock and you go, oh, hey. Odd response, isn't it? To be troubled by them is an odd response. To be apathetic toward them is a strange response. But that's us. That's what we do with God. We are suspicious of him. We are apathetic toward him. And Jesus has come to rescue us from death, from judgment at the, the greatest cost to himself. And yet, you may be sitting there saying, I know, I know, I know all about it. Maybe this will help when this newborn king, Jesus, grew up and began his ministry. He healed many diseases, as you'll read about in the Gospels. And these diseases are pictures of what sin can do to us, pictures of what we're like in the condition of sin, diseased with sin, right? So blindness, for instance, is a picture of what we are like in sin. And you know what Paul says? He says in 2 Corinthians 4 that the evil one, Satan, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe so they can't see the magnificence and beauty of Jesus. Blindness. Which can produce apathy, right? Apathy is pictured by blindness. You don't see the beauty... It's like a blind person in front of a glorious sunset. The sunset's there, but they can't see it, right? That's what I was like for the longest time in my life. That's what all of us are like before God comes to us. But the good news is that a few verses later, Paul says about himself and all other Christians. So we're all in the same boat. Because the question might be, well, how did you get where you are, Paul? And then he goes to Genesis. I love this. He goes to Genesis, the very beginning of Genesis, where it says, it says, let there be light. God said, let there be light. And he says, the one who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown into our hearts the beauty and glory of Christ. Isn't that the most beautiful thing? Same God, same power, same helpless darkness that creation was in. And it would have forever stayed in darkness had he not said, let there be light. In a way then, for us, in our blindness, he says, let there be light. 
And this time, not the light of the S-U-N, but the light of the S-O-N, right? The light and beauty of Jesus Christ. So, God must heal our blindness and our apathy. God will do it as we cry out to him. So, Jesus, this king of the Jews, are, are you troubled by him? Are you apathetic toward him? Or... Are you joyfully worshiping him? And we come to the wise men. Now, in spite of the popular song, you know, uh, we three kings of Orient are. uh, These were not kings, but they were counselors to kings. It actually says in Daniel chapter 2, verse 48, that Daniel, a Jew, was put in charge of all its wise men. They were teachers of science and religion, especially focused on astronomy. And it's obvious that Christians wouldn't have made this up because it would it'd be an embarrassment that astronomers from the East came to worship. It's not something you might want to advertise because astrology and looking at the stars and magic and all these things that were all bound up in these men's lives would not be something you'd want to advertise. Probably one of the reasons this really didn't happen, just like this, right? And you'll see in our text, it says we've seen his star rising. It, uh, the best translation is not rising in the east, but just rising. And this star, somehow, and we don't know exactly how, they had some smattering of the Old Testament, maybe left over from Daniel, maybe parts of the book of Daniel, Maybe other parts that do refer, associate the star with Messiah. And, and we don't know what they saw in the star. There have been a lot of guesses, but we just don't know. But whatever it was, they were convinced that this king, the king of the Jews, not just a king, but a king that would have some kind of world significance, some kind of of influence over all things. And when they heard that he had been born, as one has said, they moved at once in costly devotion. And it's probably a group of dozens of leaders and soldiers and servants. They travel for many months, up to a thousand miles to get there. A large enough group that the report reached Herod, of course, when, when they got there. And... When they got there, we know what he said. He t- tells them it's uh, in, in Bethlehem. And they had this great joy then when the star reappeared. And, and at least at this point, maybe even before this, uh, the scholars would say this was a miraculous appearance of some light because it actually directed them. They knew it was in Bethlehem, but apparently this star directed them to the place, Okay. And, and, you know, star, a literal star can't do that. So that would be my take on this, that this was a miraculous work of, of God. And their joy in seeing it because that, they realize God is present in this. God is directing us. There's hope that we're going to have success in seeing this, this king, this newborn king of, uh, who, who, who belongs to God. And when you come to a king, you bring a gift and they brought costly gifts. Grand gifts of gold and, and spices. 
And these things even recall when the queen of Sheba visited Solomon and she brought and presented to him spices and gold. And that appearance of Sheba is used in the Psalms to point to the new Messiah that's coming, the king that's coming, and, and the things that will be given to him. And so that's all the background here. In other words, Matthew is saying, here is the king. This is the king. And using the uh, wise men, he's saying, the whole earth has come to worship him. The nations have come. And we naturally ask the question, how could they get all this? You know, how, how could a star do this? How could they know this? And in the end, we have to say, this was a miracle of God's grace. A miracle that hundreds of miles away, these men with smattering of Old Testament uh, knowledge and the stars came after this king in this way. What a marvelous work of God. It reminds me of what I've heard again and again of Muslim people trapped in an environment of hostility to Christianity and God, and they don't even have the word of God. And God is revealing himself to them in dreams again and again. And he's calling people to himself where you just think it couldn't happen. But God's making it happen. And here's Matthew right after the birth narrative, right after the uh, angel has to tell Joseph it's okay, marry Joseph, marry, uh, you can marry Mary because this is of the Holy Spirit. You say that's the birth narrative. And the first thing he brings into the account is the... Nations come to this king. And, of course, that's where Matthew ends. As this king, the Lord Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, declares all rule and authority is given to me, go into the nations and make disciples. See, this is kind of bookends of Matthew right here. It's unique to Matthew in this regard. And so, this King is a king over all, but there's a special message to us Gentiles. He is a king for you. He is your king. He is a king for the nations. He's a king for all peoples. It should encourage us. If you're Jewish, it should encourage you because he was first a Jewish king and he came as Messiah to the Jews and then the Jews themselves bring this king to the Gentiles. That's the story. A marvelous story. As we've said many times, originally there were only Jews for Jesus, right? Uh, now there are Gentiles for Jesus all around the world. So the question, though, again, are you joyfully worshiping him? And by worshiping him, I mean, in the terms of Romans 12 giving our lives up to him as a living sacrifice. This is your true worship, Paul says there. That's the essence of worship, giving myself up to this king. And the, the uh, joy of the uh, wise men shows itself in the offering of these gifts, which represent the offering of themselves. It represents their submission to him. It, it represents their honor and their love to him. 
And so it calls us to have this same response, this joyful response to give ourselves up to this king and not be troubled by him and not be apathetic by him over him, but to be joyful in our giving ourselves up to him. And so we ask this question of ourselves, am, am I coming to Christ with the eagerness of the wise men? Am I exhibiting in my life? How, how does my life show this same eagerness and passion of the wise men? That's a good question for all of us. Uh, who do you want to identify with in this story? You know, there are not a lot of places to go to identify with Herod and the leaders and even the priests and scribes who eventually wanted to kill Jesus. Everybody wanted to kill Jesus or you're overjoyed with Jesus. So ignore Jesus and that's the side, right? Or be overjoyed by Jesus. Am I welcoming his kingship in my life? Or am I rejecting his kingship in my life? You can see how Herod tries to eliminate Christ in the next passage. And in our own way, we can try to eliminate Christ from our thinking, from our purposes, from our allegiance, keeping him at bay, keeping him at the edges of my life, resisting even thinking about him. In that, I would be no different than Herod or the leaders in Jerusalem. But by God's grace, we're encouraged to think, if you would do this for these men in an utterly pagan environment, and you would pierce their hearts, and through the bit of knowledge they had and the stars, you would draw them to Jesus Christ, might you do the same for me? Right? This message isn't to divide you and the wise men eventually, uh, ultimately, but it's to draw you after the wise men. To say, the grace that drew them is the grace that can and will draw you. To be nothing less than passionate and joyful over this Christ. But for many of us, there's certain things in our lives, you know, that we think, I don't know if I could give this thing up. Give that thing up. I don't know if I could, in a sense, sacrifice this God for this God. Sacrifice this idol, this center of my life for a new center in my life. Like the rich man who came to Jesus and said, I obey all your commandments. I've done everything right. And Jesus says, okay, leave all your money and follow me. And for, the, for him, it was kind of like in Indiana Jones. You remember when... Indy finally un- uncovered the room where the ark was. And he throws it. He knows there's going to be a trap, always a trap, always something to get you when you're going for these valuable things. So he drops a flashlight down and he sees hundreds of poisonous snakes. You remember what he said? Why did it have to be snakes? Like he was a brave guy. He could face so many things. Not snakes. And so many, and that's what the rich young ruler, why did it have to be money? Anything else? Or is there something like that in your life? That, that you're, that, that's your, it's your worship in a sense. It's, it's what you depend on and, and it, you treasure it so much and 
You just don't know. Why does it have to be snakes? Right? Well, God enables you. And, and look, giving your life up is a process till the day you die. If our lives were completely given up, we'd be perfect people, but they're not. And so we enter into a lifetime of continuing day by day to give ourselves up to this king. To become more and more joyful in our worship of him. More and more free from self and more and more caught up in his glory and beauty. To be like him and to make him known. What a glorious thing to see these wise men come with such passion. To offer so much, to sacrifice so much for this king. Oh, God will do that for all of Fort Worth Presbyterian Church. Anyone who's sitting here. God is a gracious God calling people to himself. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for this glorious story. We thank you, Lord, for revealing it to us by your Holy Spirit. We praise you, Lord, for what work you did in the lives of of these wise men so many hundreds of miles away uh, from where Jesus was born. Yet you knew them, you sought them, you drew them, you gave them a passion for this king. Lord, we are encouraged. We've seen so much more of this king. They, they didn't know that he would die on a cross. They, they didn't know probably fully that this was God come in the flesh and that this God come in the flesh would actually sacrifice himself for sinners. Oh, Lord, what treasures we have seen in Christ. But, Lord, we recognize that we're troubled in many ways by your ownership of us. And, Lord, we, we know there's so many apathetic pockets in our lives where we simply are dulled against the beauty of Jesus. And so, we would give ourselves up to you to continue your salvation and your work in our lives. And if there are those here who have never entrusted themselves to Christ, themselves to Christ, Lord, would you even work in their hearts now? Draw them to Christ. Reveal the beauty of a God who sacrifices himself for others. Oh, Lord, may they embrace you and entrust their lives to this good and gracious, humble King. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.